morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are outside in our viewing area out in the patio. I don't know if you've noticed uh, all of the hanging flower baskets that are out there. So the first day of spring, uh, it's looking nice out there. So we're glad that you're joining us out on the patio and also those of you here in the auditorium. In this series of messages, we've been considering what it means to be extraordinary. I think all of us uh, want to be extraordinary. And the question is, how do we become extraordinary? So far, we've looked at the first part of this compound word, the extra part of extraordinary. And we've been asking the question, what is the extra that when added, added to the ordinary us makes us truly extraordinary? What is the extra? And it turns out that our list of extras that we think makes someone extraordinary, it's very different from God's list of extras. And that's what we've been focusing on. But today, I want to turn our attention to the second part of that compound word, the ordinary part of extraordinary. Turns out that God has embedded some pretty amazing extras in just the ordinary flow of our days, just ordinary days. And the word that describes the path to these extras, to this extraordinary experience, is the word faithful. Faithful. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, it's another compound word. It has two parts to it. It has faith and it has full. Faith means to put your trust in someone. That's just a basic definition of faith, to put your trust in someone. Full, the part of that second part of the word, points to the fact that there's always a range of faith. There's always a range of trust. All the way from empty, no trust, faithless, to full, complete trust, faithful. So faithfulness is really about how faith is filled. How is our faith filled? So how is it that faith is filled? And conversely, how is it drained or emptied? Well, to understand this, we have to first recognize that there's always at least two sides to faith. And that's because faith is trust. In order to trust, you've got to at least have two people. There's going to be trust. So we're going to put two uh, images of individuals, outline of individuals up on the slide here. And this represents the trust that would exist between two individuals. And on the left side is the one who is doing the trusting. That's why the trust arrow goes away from them. On the right side is the one who is being trusted. Now, faith in the one who is being trusted is filled by evidence. So if you are wanting to trust someone, if you want to place your faith in someone, the big question you have is, are there reasons behind why I might trust them, why I might count on them, why I might have faith in them? You're looking for evidence. Let's say, for example, these two individuals, this person on the, on the left side is looking to hire the person on the right side. And that's really a question of trust. If you're going to hire someone to work for you, um, that's not the highest level of trust, but it does take trust. You're going to pay them money, and you're going to not be able to see everything they do, so you're going to have to trust them. It's going to, it's going to involve a risk. So you're looking for trustworthiness in the person you want to hire. And therefore, you're looking for evidence. How do you find evidence of trustworthiness? Do you listen to what they say? Well, yeah, you'll probably interview them. But if you're smart, you'll know that that's not enough to base trust decisions on. Because people can say pretty much anything. 
They can be great in an interview and then awful on the job. So you look more beyond what they say to what they've actually done up to this point in time. That's why you ask for a resume. A resume is simply a record of what a person has done. It is supposedly containing the evidence of why you might put your trust in them, why you might hire them. And what you're looking for on that resume is a track record of faithfulness in the skills that you are wanting them to do. The question you're asking, has anyone else seen them do what they are telling me they will do if I hire them? Has anyone else seen this? Is there any evidence for this? Any evidence that they can be trusted? Now, if you're, if you're interviewing someone who's coming straight out of school and they have little or no job experience, that's not ideal because the best evidence is what they've actually done in previous jobs. But even if they've just graduated from school, there is the evidence of their grades. Their grade point average is evidence. For example, an A, an A average basically tells you that this person probably turned in their assignments on time, and they probably did a pretty good job on their assignments. That's what an A is supposed to mean. But if they have a C average, not so much. They probably didn't get their assignments in on time, and they probably didn't do a great job on their assignments. Now, that doesn't mean everything about the person, but at least it's a piece of evidence, an indicator that you might be really cautious before you hire this person because they don't have a track record of faithfulness. They don't have a track record of doing what they say they're going to do. So our faithfulness is the evidence that makes the case that someone can put their trust in us. But that doesn't mean, simply because there's evidence, that someone will suddenly place their full faith in a person. And that's because the faith of the one doing the trusting is filled by experience. So, on the being trusted side, it's filled with evidence. On the trusting side, it's filled with experience. Their faith, this person's faith, grows as they, they experience what the person actually said to be true. So, let's say you hire this person based on their resume, based on their interviews, based on their grade point average. You say, you know, there's, there's enough reason for me to hire this person, to at least take that first step of trust. And you hire them based on the evidence from their resume and their references because it looks good. But you don't start them out at some high level of pay. In fact, you probably start them out on a period of probation. Why? It's because you have no personal experience that what they have said and what others have said about them is true. So over time, if they actually do what they say they would do and other people said they would do, well, then your trust, your faith grows. They prove to you that they can be counted on. You experience the faithfulness and your faith in them is filled. And if the opposite turns out, that you have no idea how they got that GPA and you have no idea what these references were talking about because this person is not doing work at all, well, then your faith is drained and they probably don't make it past the probationary period. Now, this is how faith works. It works this way between people, and it works this way between God. We will not put our faith in God unless there is evidence that He is real, and that what He says is true, and that we can actually count on Him. He will be faithful. Now, most, but not all of the evidence that would lead a person 
to take that initial step of trust or faith in God, most of that evidence is found in the pages of the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 90 says this about God. Your faithfulness continues throughout or through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. This verse is saying God can be counted on. It's written by King David, someone who had experience in the fact that God could be counted on. And he's saying God can be counted on. But what's the evidence beyond this verse? Well, generations, it says, generations of people have seen God come through and do what he said he would do. But reading this verse and reading those stories of the people who have experienced this isn't necessarily going to do anything to fill your faith. Because reading about it is not the same as experiencing it. And so in a sense, the Bible is kind of like a a resume. It's a record of God's faithfulness, of what he has done in the past. And it contains enough evidence for you to take that first initial step of trust and to decide, you know, Jesus really is who he claimed to be. There's enough evidence behind that, and, and this, this really is true, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow him. I'm going to take that, that step of trust. But if you don't begin to experience, if you don't move beyond the evidence to experience, If you don't begin to experience the words that God has said personally being real in your life, then God will forever be on kind of a probationary period in your mind and in your heart and in your life. You'll never really grow because you're not sure. Your faith is based on the evidence of what other people have said, but you don't have a lot of experience of doing what God has said and seeing God come through for you and having your faith grow. You don't have enough experience. There's evidence, but not enough experience. Now, the kind of experiences that grow and fill our faith are not found in some big emotional, spiritual-sounding, mountaintop kind of moment. Now, when those happen, that's fine. There's no problem with those. That's great. But faith, faithfulness, faith is filled. It's grown in the trenches of everyday life. That's where our faith grows or doesn't grow. This is why an ordinary day is such a big deal. This is why an ordinary day can be so extraordinary. Every single day has the power to experience God's faithfulness and to incrementally, almost imperceptibly, but over time significantly add to our faith. Now, this morning, I want to talk about the three big ways that in, in the day, in an ordinary day, our faith can grow, can be added to. As we faithfully work on these three areas we're going to look at this morning, God adds some amazing extras to our life. It turns out there is a lot of gold to be mined out of the ore of an ordinary day. And we're going to look at three gold nuggets in particular that can be mined out of an ordinary day as we grow in faithfulness. Golden nugget number one. If we are faithful to God's word, God will grant us extra perception. Extra perception. Now, you may have heard of extrasensory perception, or ESP as it's summarized. That refers to a sense beyond our five basic senses. 
Sometimes it's referred to as the sixth sense. Now, there is no clear scientific evidence of a sixth sense, but that doesn't stop people from searching for a sixth sense. And people can get pretty weird in their search for some extrasensory perception. And the reason we, we look for something like this is because we really could use the help. We could use some extra perception. But we have a hard time coming up with it. The reason we need extra perception is because the decisions that we have to make are not always that easy. And they take us into areas that our five senses don't provide data for. And we don't know exactly what to do. I mean, this has been obviously a very challenging year for decision making. COVID decisions are complex. And it started out with the expert telling, experts telling us what to do. And I've noticed over the last probably six months or so, every time you see the word expert, the word that's most often attached to it is worry. Experts worry. Well, I didn't take too much intelligence to worry. Everybody worries. But it means we just don't know what's going to happen next. And it's very complex in the decision-making. But it turns out COVID decisions, I think, are rather simple compared to some of the other big decisions we face in life. You know, if you're a parent of an angry teenager, you've got a lot of tough decisions. And you'll look at that person you love so much and see their struggles, and you'll wonder, what should we do? That's a complex decision. You would love some ESP on that one. Or if you've been in an ongoing conflict mode with your spouse, and you just can't seem to figure out how to resolve it, that's, that's a complex set of decisions. It's not really clear what you should do. Or you're trying to figure out whether to uproot your family and move. Boy, that's a complex decision. It would be great to have a little ESP help, a little extrasensory perception. Well, it turns out God offers that if we are faithful to his word. Here's what we read in Hebrews 5, 13 through 14. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, and here's the ESP part, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Wouldn't that be great if your radar, your personal radar, just like, ah, that's not good, this is good. I can trust this person, I can't trust that person. Here's the better decision. That would be amazing. That's what this is offering. How? This is talking about the nourishment that comes from the Bible, from God's Word. And it's building an analogy that says just like food produces energy for the body, the Word of God, His words contained in the Bible, can produce wisdom for decision-making. But in order for that to happen, a similar change needs to occur that needs to occur in the eating of food for every human being. Just like a child goes through a food transition, a follower of Jesus needs to go through a Bible transition. So just like a child, there, there's this important shift from milk to solid food. Same thing needs to happen in the Bible. There, there needs to be a shift from the milk of God's Word to the solid food of God's Word. What is the difference between these two? Milk is the part of the Bible that simply needs to be accepted for it to nourish us. 
like milk, you don't need to chew it, you just swallow it, or as sometimes happens, spit it out, reject it. But milk doesn't need to be chewed, it just needs to be swallowed or rejected. And there's sections of God's Word that contain truth, statements of truth. And there are some evidence behind the statements, but they're basically statements of truth, like Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I'm God. Well, you either look at the evidence and say, I'm going to accept that, or you reject it. I'm going to swallow that, or I'm going to spit that out. Jesus says, there's no way to the Father but through me. There's no way for forgiveness. I'm the one mediator between God and man. There's the only, I'm the only hope of forgiveness. Well, again, that's either you swallow that or you spit it out. Either you say, I agree with that, or you don't agree with that. So in order, that's that first step of trust that I was talking about. You, you, you look at the evidence, you see what Jesus said and the evidence behind it, and you get to the point where you say, you know what? I accept that. I agree with that. I'm going to swallow that. And you are nourished by the milk of God's Word. But if you never go beyond the basic truths, these basic truths, then just like a child that never goes beyond milk, your growth is going to be stunted. As it says, you will not be acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. What is that? Righteousness, the root of that word, is right. You, you won't know how to do what is right according to God, in the situation you find yourself in. You won't learn how to do what is right. For that, you need solid food. And you will spend the rest of your life here on earth needing and eating the nourishment of the solid food of God's Word. What's the solid food part of God's Word? Well, that's the part of the Bible that must be practiced in order for it to nourish us. Not just accepted, but done practiced. So the difference between the milk and the solid food is you go from nodding yes, that's the milk, to doing yes, that's the solid food. How? Well, as it says, by constant use. You practice it. Now, some people have taught, and I heard this kind of growing up some, that what distinguishes the milk of God's Word from the solid food is the difficulty in understanding. That's the difference. I mean, it's true. The Bible does have some parts that are harder to understand than others. But the chewing that this is talking about is in the doing of the words, not in the thinking about the words. It's in the doing of the words. That's why it says solid food is for the mature who by constant use. That's the key word, constant use, not constant thought, not constant talking about, not constant impressing people about how much you know. That's not how you nourish yourself and not what the solid food is. It's by constant use. Every time you do what God has said, if you take something that God has said and you put it into practice in your life, you're chewing. You're breaking down the power of God's Word, and like nutrients, it's beginning to power your life. And you're, you're growing in wisdom. You're understanding. So solid food is not the, hard, the stuff that's hard to understand. Turns out it's the stuff that's hard to do. You know, for example, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, pretty quickly, you have a sense of, 
what that means. There may be some complexities in that, but you're pretty sure what that means. But doing that, that's where the hard part is. That is a big, thick piece of steak. You're going to have to chew on that one for a long I've been chewing on that one for years, and I'm still learning and growing. We all need a lot of practice in that. But if you develop the routine of chewing on God's Word, God will give you amazing extrasensory perception. You'll be able to distinguish good from evil. You'll be able to face more and more decisions and have a clear sense of, that's good, and that's not good. Now, let me make clear, the Bible is not an instant answer book. Because it works the same way nutrition does. It takes time for your body to turn a meal into energy. And it takes an even longer time to turn the truth of God's words into wisdom. So it's not an instant solution. It's a long-term solution. You know, when I started riding my bike longer distances, I discovered that if I'd not been eating the right kind of foods earlier, that I would run out of energy, usually at about the 30-mile mark. And there's a word for it. After I experienced it, someone told me what it was. Bikers call it bonking. It's a great description. I mean, that's literally what happens. You, you just hit this wall, and it's not an endurance wall. It's not a will wall. It's a, I'm out of gas wall. I mean, you, you, you're out of energy, and you bonk. You just crash. And at that point, this happened a few times to me, at that point, you've got to get off your bike. And you've got to sit down, and you've got to drink, and you've got to eat. And you've got to give it time before you get back on your bike, because it's not a quick fix. It takes time to regain strength. That's because, as I said, it takes time to turn food into energy. And it's the same with the Bible. It takes time to turn God's words into wisdom. Much longer, not just hours, days, months, years, to turn God's words into wisdom. So the Bible is not a reference book that you pull off the shelf, dust off when you're in trouble, and you need an answer. Now, if you're in trouble, go ahead and pull the Bible off the shelf and read it. But don't expect there to be an instant fix. It's more like food that takes months to digest and turn into insight. So what we do, if we're faithful, is that we read and apply something from the Bible today. Not so much because we have a burning question that needs to be answered today, but mostly because we need to get ready for a problem that we don't even know about that's coming six months down the road or a year down the road, and we are eating God's words today because we're going to need wisdom in the future. That's how it works. That's the golden nugget that we can mine out of every day. Golden nugget number two. If we are faithful in prayer, God sends extra help. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus tells this parable. This is what we read. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray every day and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God, he didn't take God serious, he didn't care about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. 
Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, I could care less about, I don't think God's going to hold me to account, and I really don't care about people, I'm selfish, even though that's who I am, yet because this widow keeps bugging me, keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge said. And by contrast, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, it's a reference Jesus used to refer to himself, when I come back, will he find faith on the earth? So is this saying that we need to pummel God with prayer in order to get him to act on our behalf? No. That's what you have to do as a tactic with someone who doesn't care about you and doesn't care about justice. You just need to make their life miserable enough before they finally decide, you know what, it's better to give you justice and get a little peace. But this is a story of contrast. Jesus is saying, even this widow knew the importance of persistence with a bad judge, but you need to understand the importance of persistence with the good judge, with the one who does care. So why then does he ask us to cry out to him day and night? If he really cares, he knows what we need. Why does he ask us to be as persistent as this woman was with this bad judge? Well, the reason is because of a statement Jesus makes at the very end of this story. This is the point, the summary, the moral of this parable. He says, when I return, what am I going to be looking for? Faith. That's the big question. When I come back, am I going to find faith? That's what I'm going to be looking for. Is there faith there? Is there faith there? Do you have faith? That's what he's going to be looking for. You see, what matters most to us are the circumstances of our life. But what matters most to God is our faith. Bringing our circumstances to God repeatedly in prayer is one of the key elements of filling up our faith, of growing our faith. Actually, that's one of the points of our problem is so that we might go to God in prayer, so that we might wrestle with God on this, so that we might handle this problem from the faith angle, a faith perspective. You know, it occurred to me recently that my prayers had become too general. I have, for some time now this year, I've been praying for some pretty big things, and I'm continuing to pray for them. I don't think these are wrong prayers, but I just don't think they were specific enough. So I've been praying for things like unity at Seabreeze. I mean, this is a year of division. You know, maybe, maybe we agree about Jesus, but I'll tell you, nobody in this room agrees on COVID. So I've been praying that in this season of division, when there's just all kinds of reasons to divide, that God would unite us around what really matters and what's going to stand the test of time. I've been praying that. And once construction started, I've been praying for those working on the site that God would bless them and might turn some of them to Him and might become a part of this church. Now, those are some great things to pray, and I've been praying those, but the difficulty in, in those prayers is that it's hard to know when they've been answered. 
And I don't think this woman in Luke chapter 18 was asking for justice in general. The impression is that she had a particular piece of injustice that she was dealing with that she was asking this judge about. And similarly, God invites us to get very specific with our prayers. A specific prayer is one way of saying to God and to our own hearts that we are now talking to the one who's not just generally involved in life, but he's involved in the details of our day. So I've come up with five very specific prayers that I'm asking God to do before Easter. What can I be assured of in those five prayers? That God will do what I ask in all five situations? No, that's not what he promises. I can be assured that he will hear these prayers and that he will act. You see, when we go before God, it's kind of like going before a judge. That was the reason Jesus told this parable. There's some similarities between these two. We're not placing an order. We are having our day in court. That's what prayer is really like. And now, my limited experience in the courtroom is that you never know how things are going to turn out once you walk in that courtroom. And it's the same with God. That's been my experience. Now, God will never do you wrong. He's not a bad judge. It's not like human justice where sometimes injustice just, or justice just isn't served. That's not with God. The, the, the issue with God is that our sense of justice is usually so small. It's just about something we want. And God's working on a much larger scale, so sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we want. But your approach in the courtroom needs to be the same when you pray. You come prepared to make your case. And to make your case in a courtroom, you need to know the law. It's the same with God. If you're going to make your case before God in prayer, it really helps to know what He has said on the topic in the Bible. Now, if you don't know much of the Bible, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. Take what you do know and start praying about that, and then learn more and expand your prayers. So pray. And if the answer to your specific prayer is no, guess what? That's a great opportunity for you to learn. Maybe the request was off. Maybe there's something bigger going on. It's an opportunity for your faith to grow. Now the last golden nugget, golden nugget number three. And I've got three little smaller nuggets to go with this one. Golden nugget number three is faithful in little. If we are faithful in the small stuff, in little, God grants us extra promotion. Jesus tells a lengthy story of an unfaithful servant, an unfaithful employee in today's economy. And he summarizes it with these words in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 2. 12 rather. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little will also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What's the point? Well, if you're a boss and you're trying to decide who to promote, what do you look for? Faithfulness, Right? You look for a track record of faithfulness in the tasks that have already been assigned. And it's, Jesus says it's the same with God. 
If you want God to do more in your life, then look at how you're handling what he's given you right now. And there are three specific areas of your life that God regularly evaluates for faithfulness. These are the three smaller nuggets that make up this big nugget. I'll describe it this way. The first one is little jobs before big jobs. This is what God looks at. As it says, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with little, a little job, a little responsibility, that's probably a good indication they can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little, they probably can't be trusted with much. They'll be dishonest with much. God always tests us with the little responsibilities before he gives us the big responsibilities. If you've read much of the Bible, you have probably read many of the stories of how God did some pretty amazing, extraordinary things in the lives of many individuals. What you may not have noticed is in almost every case that I can think of, those great moments, those great stories were preceded by years in the trenches of hidden faithfulness. And we don't read about the trenches because those are ordinary days and they're not interesting. The story's interesting. But the story didn't just land out of the sky. It was the product of faithfulness in little things. Let me just give you one example. The story of David and Goliath. We all know that story probably. David, the little shepherd boy, defeated the giant warrior with a slingshot. Amazing, extraordinary story. That didn't just happen out of the blue. For years, David had faithfully guarded his father's herds. On two occasions, he had been attacked, first by a bear and then second occasion by a lion. And in those moments, he had seen God's hand of protection. So when he saw Goliath, he didn't freak out like everybody else did. He had experience that God can be trusted in. Not just words, but he'd actually experience God's protection. And he thought, well, if God can protect me from a lion and a bear, I'm good with the giant. I've seen God come through. I, I can trust him with that. So he was confident in God's protection when everyone else wasn't. And the only reason David ever arrived on that scene of the front lines of that battle to see that giant was not because David was some important person in the army. He wasn't even in the army. His older brothers were in the army. And his father had given him the embarrassingly humble job of bringing lunch to the older brothers, of bringing food to his older brothers. I mean, he was Uber Eats. That's how he showed up at the scene. And that turned into a story that we still talk about. He was faithfully doing the small job when God promoted him in extraordinary ways. This is the way God does it. There are no small, there are no dead-end jobs because while maybe nobody else is watching, God is. God is watching. The second area of faithfulness God looks at is money. Money before many. This is what Jesus says. Do you want to impact many lives for God? Well, how are you handling money? Jesus says, so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? What are true riches? 
Well, that's, that's people. People are priceless. And if you have people who really care about you and would be willing to come to your rescue in times of trouble, you have something far more valuable than money in the bank. If there are people whose lives you have impacted for God, you will have a reward in heaven that will make any balance sheet here on earth seem insignificant. That's true riches. And at the end of your life, this will be obvious. But by then, it's going to be too late to diversify and invest in the true riches portfolio. One of the ways that you open up the true riches account is by handling dollars the way God instructs you to. What Jesus is saying is if, if you can't be trusted with American dollars that one day are going to be worth absolutely nothing, why would I entrust you with people that will be worth more than you can imagine for all of eternity? That's a big promotion. And if you can't handle the entry-level job of money, I'll wait till you get that figured out before I'll give you real influence in the lives of other people. How we handle our money is God's entry-level job. Until we get that hooked up right, there's just a whole world that doesn't open up until that happens of God's growth in our life. Lastly, yours before mine. Jesus says, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? God looks at how we treat what, some, what has someone else's name on it before he gives us more stuff with our name on it. Why? Because God's name, it turns out, is on everything. And if we don't treat what belongs to someone else in a trustworthy way, then God knows that we will never take that all-important step of treating everything that we own as actually belonging to him, and we're just managing it. So he'll hold back until we start treating other people's stuff faithfully. So would you like to be extraordinary? We all would. Then start working. Work on turning God's words into action today. Do something today out of obedience from what you've read in the Bible. Work on turning problems into prayers. you got problems. Take some time today to pray about those problems. Work on being faithful with what you have. Most people will say, if you want to be extraordinary, start dreaming. Well, dreaming is fine, but God responds to what we do, not what we dream. And what we do always involves today. So this may look like just an ordinary day, but it turns out there's a lot of gold buried in the dirt of ordinary days. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and how it tells us what is true. Many of us in this room have seen your faithfulness over the years. And I pray for those that are maybe at the, the edge of deciding whether to take that first step of trust or maybe re-engage with you again. God, I pray that you'd, you'd help them to take that step. And then you would grow their faith as they take action and see that what you've said actually is true. It really does work. Father, I, I pray that you would grow our faith that we would not despise 
the ordinary days when no one is looking because those are the moments when you're looking. Help us to be faithful. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.